life-filled and um, points them towards God. We live in a culture where so much of what bombards our young people are worldviews of hedonism and nihilism and cynicism. And to be a part of a church that is actively on the vanguard of inviting young people into something different and something truer and more meaningful and more beautiful is, that's a huge value of mine. And I know it's a value of uh, so many of you. So let's continue to lift up uh, Rick and the volunteers and the students in our youth ministry. Uh, Before we move into the sermon, I want to just take uh, a few moments and invite you to stand, turn to someone around you and just say one thing from this week that you are grateful for. One thing that you're like, I'm so happy this happened this week, or this was a highlight of my week, this was a rose of my week. Just take a few moments and do that with someone around you. Go ahead. Paul is making sure that our volunteer role for nursery and Sunday school is really strong, so it's not resting on a few people, so that we can be a blessing to young families. So I'm going to ask uh, Ray McCortoff to come up, and he's just going to share with people how they can get involved, because it's hugely important. Okay, so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 26 this morning. I, th- I hope I sent you the right PowerPoint, Greg. Can you go to the next slide? I just want to see, I have 1 Samuel 25 there. Yeah, yeah, okay, we're good. So it's just a typo on the first. It's 1 Samuel 26 we're going to be in. And um, we've been journeying through the book of Samuel one chapter at a time. And what we're looking at is, at the moment, is the life of David during a time where he has been on the run from Saul, who's kind of gone into the spiral of madness. And a few chapters earlier, Saul has, David confronted Saul, and Saul said, hey, you know what? You're right, you're righteous. You could have killed me. You didn't. And I'm going to kind of call off the, the hunt because Saul has been enraged by his jealousy. And we've been learning a lot about what it means to follow God in the midst of really trying times when there are people or circumstances that are kind of hounding us and we don't know how to get away from. And what does it look like to trust God when a lot of our uh, material security is removed? So we're learning a lot from David and, and in these verses and chapters, learning how they ultimately point us towards our need for Jesus. So let's, we're going to move through this text and I'm just going to highlight a few things along the way. Uh, verse 1, the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding in the hill of Hekela that faces Jeshimon? Now right away, if you've been tracking with the series, this is sort of a repeat of something that's happened earlier. The Ziphites went to Saul a number of chapters earlier and said the same thing. Uh, They were uh, a tribe that lived in the desert of Ziph, so they're the Ziphites, and they were kind of saying, hey, Saul, like they were kind of inviting Saul to, I mean, they were sort of giving up where David's location was when Saul was originally hunting, but now they come back to Saul and they're like, you know, if you've changed your mind about dealing with David, like we know where he is. And then it says, unfortunately, Saul went down to the desert of Ziph. This tempts Saul, and he's like, yeah, maybe I was a little too hasty to say I was going to, like, not kill and hunt down David. With 3,000 select Israelite troops, and he searched there for David, and Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekilah, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. So he sees this army of 3,000. He's suspicious, suspicious that it's Saul, but then he gets confirmation through these scouts. 
So then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. And he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, who was the commander of the army, had lain down. And Saul was lying inside the camp. And the army, this 3,000 uh, special op forces army, were, in, were encamped around him, which is smart, right? He's the king. You want to protect him. But there's also a little bit of a... I mean, it's not the wrong thing to do, but it is an allusion to the fact that in Leviticus, when God says, this is how you're going to move through the wilderness, uh, the tabernacle, God's presence is at the center of the camp and all the other tribes get placed around it. So some commentators and some Jewish commentators see this as Saul putting himself symbolically in the place of God. Like, I'm the most important thing. I'm the person that we build around. Verse 6, David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, will you go down into the camp with me to Saul? So David goes to these probably mercenaries and he says, and a Hittite is a non-Jew who's converted. So, um, so he's not ethnically Jewish, but he's with David. And David says, do you guys want to come with me on a mission? I'm going in alone. And Abishai says, I'll go with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. And Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. So at this point, David and Abishai have kind of moved past. They've penetrated the outer circle. Everyone's asleep. They haven't woken anybody up. They've moved in. They've gotten right there. The spear is right beside Saul's head. It's just the two of them. And they look around and they've gone completely undetected. Abishai says to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. He's like, dude, this is amazing. We couldn't have even in our wildest dreams couldn't have asked for it to be this easy. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him tw twice, meaning I'm not going to need a second blow. Like He's right there. I'll just run this guy through. Now notice the double temptation here. Two chapters earlier, Saul is relieving himself in a cave. David has the opportunity and he's encouraged by his men to kill Saul and that way he can just jump to the throne. He can fast forward. He can get rid of all this messiness on the run and he's, he's the anointed, so just grab that. Take your place, David. Kill Saul. And David goes up, cuts part of his garment and then feels, feels remorse. He says, I shouldn't have even done that. And here the temptation again is by someone close to David, someone that David trusts, offering sort of a two-layered temptation. Number one, it's God's will. Like, a, we wouldn't have gotten here. You, there, this opportunity wouldn't be before you if God didn't want you to do this. But in case you're still hesitant, you don't even have to get your hands dirty. I'll do it for you. Just let, just you say the word. Give me the nod. You don't even have to say the word, just kind of like, Give me a little lean. And that way, if it ever comes, it won't come back to you, David. I'll do it. I'll take care of things. And right away, there's something that, uh, something that I was listening to this week picked up, and I think it's really, really wise. Sometimes our greatest temptation, the, the greatest temptations that will come our way is not from kind of our unspiritual enemies, but from overzealous uh, Christians and friends in our lives. And maybe you've experienced this, where you have a situation that you're uncertain that this is not, or maybe you just know this is not the right thing to do, but you have someone saying, 
come on, like, no one's going to know. It's not a big deal. If God didn't want you to take advantage of this opportunity, he wouldn't have opened it to you. You know what? You don't even have to do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll take care of this. You just have to kind of turn a blind eye. Like, how, how do we deal with temptations from our Christian friends? People who in the moment, either out of, maybe it's well-intended, they're like, this is an amazing opportunity. We shouldn't let it go to waste. But the means by which you have to seize and take advantage of that opportunity is actually sinful and wrong. How do you deal with that? David shows a lot of character here. He could avoid the direct blood guilt and just kind of wink at his right-hand man to do the dirty work. But he says, verse 9, don't destroy him. Don't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed because who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and still be guiltless. Saul says, even if I'm not directly killing him, I would be complicit in his murder. I would be allowing it to happen when it's in my power to say to you, no. And that's a great character test for all of us because sometimes we think that God only holds us accountable to the sins that we you know, actually do. But if someone else is doing it, like that's not my problem. But God also holds us accountable to prevent wrongdoing when it's in our power to do it, even if we're not the ones doing it, right? Like you walk by and someone's being bullied in your school, you can say, well, I'm not doing the bullying, my hands are clean. But if it's in your power to intervene and stop it and say, hey, what's going on here? Interrupt the pattern of bullying at, at minimum and, and maybe potentially put yourself in harm's way for the sake of someone else, we should be doing that. We should be doing the right thing, even when it's difficult. And then in verse 10, this is amazing. This is David speaking, and he says, as surely as the Lord lives, he's like, this is such a solid truth. You can take this to the bank. He says, the Lord will strike Saul, or Saul's time will come and he will die, or he's going to go into battle and perish. Now, this is actually really, really amazing. And uh, this is probably one of the most, this is the convictional center maybe of the whole passage for me. And that is, notice what is happening. David's being tempted to kill Saul because Abishai says, this is the way, this is God's will, this is the way that he's going to advance you to the throne. And David says, no, I can think of a lot of other ways God could do it. God could just strike him dead like he did with Nabal in the previous chapter. Uh, maybe he'll just grow old and die, or he's going to go into battle and perish. But he's not going to die by my hand. And in um, Bill Arnold in the NIV application commentary, I, I think this is a brilliant insight that maybe I could have read this a hundred times that I wouldn't, picked up on, wouldn't have picked up on. He says, notice what's happening here. He says, David's faith is setting his imagination to work. Notice that David conceives of lots of different ways God could deliver him from the threat of Saul. David says he could work directly like he did with Nabal. Maybe there's going to be a more natural way. But Arnold says the primary matter is that God is going to see to it. But a living, lively faith can actually envision numerous ways in which Yahweh could accomplish his, pur his purposes. And when it comes to times of difficulty, I'll speak for myself. This is something I'm kind of setting aside time uh, on my 
forthcoming sabbatical to work on. When difficult times come, it's very easy for me, and maybe for you, to let my imagination run wild in the direction of all the ways that things could go wrong. So I tend to catastrophize scenarios. And I learned that through a really unhealthy combination of family of origin stuff and then lack of good coaching and uh, lack of strengthening in certain areas in my early discipleship. And I'm trying to make amends for that now. But, you know, when hard times come, especially when the pressure's on, our minds can kind of go in two different directions. We can either let our imaginations run wild with all the ways this could go sideways and south, and our imagination gets filled with worst-case scenario outcomes, or we can allow our imagination to play with, I wonder how God is going to deliver me from this. Because I could see him doing it this way, or actually, I could see him doing it this way too. I wonder if he'll like, do it this way. That, that would be weird, but that would be cool. I mean, how many of us default to that? I mean, I honestly often don't. I default to, I can see all the ways it could go wrong. God, please protect me from all these ways it could go wrong. But here what you're seeing is a faithful, a faith-filled imagination that sees possibilities even when things look really, really difficult. Bill Arnold says, modern believers would do well to let their imaginations run riot in regard to the adequacy and the sufficiency of God. And regretfully, we often associate our imagination with falsehoods or flights of fancy. It's kind of, our imagination is kind of like a distraction. But he says, faithful imagination can't be accused of that. In fact, one could argue, faith needs imagination to pull out all the stops if we're going to appreciate the beauty and grandeur of God and have a vision for how God could redeem and save that keeps us held in the moment, held to a commitment to be obedient. But often our minds are really sluggish and they're uncreative or they're proud. And we have a desperate need of cultivating a faithful imagination. And so when we go through hard times, surely God is honored when His people ask, I wonder how God's going to work in this. I wonder how God's going to save. I mean, at first pass, I don't really see, but when I think about it and pray about it and play with it in my imagination, maybe like this or like that or like that, and that does build faith. Now, it may seem wise and self-protective when we're in difficult situations to think and anticipate all the ways that could go wrong, and maybe in some cases there is some wisdom there, but God wants us to bring the burden to Him, to cast our cares on Him, and then consider and even kind of like fantasize about how He might do great things in a situation that looks very limited. Verse 11, David says, The Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near His head and let's go. To which Abishai is like, what? We risked our lives and did this reconnaissance mission for salt, spear, and water? We're not going to kill them? We're not going to put an end to this on-the-run lifestyle? Now notice what David says again. He says, I don't know how God's going to work. I don't know how God's going to deal with Saul. 
but I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to do wrongdoing. And again, that's, that's important as well because that means that even though David didn't understand how God was going to work, he pulled everything back to, but I'm going to do the next right thing. And the next right thing is not to take advantage of Saul in this moment of vulnerability and murder him. And so we're, again, we're seeing David as this amazing example of someone who says, the ends don't justify the means. Even though I could achieve this end of being swept into kingship and be placed on the throne, if I have to dishonor God, if I have to sin, if I have to murder or cheat or lie or steal in order to advance that, I'm not going to do it. And that's how we often know we're trusting God in a situation. That maybe we want something, maybe that something's good, but we commit ourselves to saying, I will not grab at this, I will not try and secure it through lying, cheating, stealing, right? David doesn't know all the ins and outs. He doesn't know God's blueprint plan at this point for what he's going to do with Saul, but he knows what God's will is. Did he live a righteous, holy life before God. And so a Christian can not understand. You can be in the dark in terms of, I don't know how this situation in my marriage is going to get untangled or this situation at work or this situation with um, a teenager or a friend or a family fracture. I, I don't see how it's going to work out. But what I do know is I'm not going to pursue adultery while I'm in the uh, chaos of a messy and maybe disappointing or difficult marriage space. What I'm not going to do, even though I'm having difficulty with my coworker, is I'm not going to go behind their back and slander them to other people at work. I will endeavor to honor them as much as I can. Even though there's tremendous friction with my parent or my teenager, what I'm going to do is I am not going to allow that friction to breed uh, a resentment and anger and just find ways to spew uh, passive-aggressive, venomous, uh, destructive comments. Just kind of pepper them. Again, I'm going to figure out a way to honor my mother and father. I'm going to look for a way to not, exas you know, not, not exacerbate my child, not stir them towards anger. David again shows us a conviction that the ends does not always justify the means. We have to be very careful, not just the goals that we are chasing and the ends that we want, but how we are pursuing them. If I want restoration, if I want someone to, if I, if I want to confront someone, then I should confront someone. I shouldn't post something online that is like, do you ever know those people who say and do these things and just kind of hope they're watching that post and they get the message? That's cowardly, it's sinful, it's passive-aggressive, it's immature. Have the guts to say, pick up the phone, say, can we meet, can we talk? This isn't going to be an easy conversation, but I want to address something that has been bothering me. Maybe it shouldn't even bother me. So we might want the right end, but we have to go after it the right way. 
Continuing on, David took the spear in the water jug near Saul's head, and then they left, and no one saw or knew about it, nor did anybody wake up, because the text says they were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. This is the same Hebrew word um, in, in which God puts a deep sleep on Adam and then removes Adam's rib and fashions woman. So it's a supernatural uh, kind of catatonic state, a trance-like state. And the whole army was under this. But David and Abishai don't know that. They're just moving through the camp and they're like, we are so stealthy. We are, we're better than we thought. And they get there and all this plays out. Right? David doesn't know this. This is a note from the narrator of the story to the reader. And again, another really important lesson here. On the ground level of life, things might just look like they're working out. But God's hand is often, God's hand of blessing and favor is also working behind the scenes. And that's why you don't just praise God for the moments that you are sure he was at work. You offer praise to God and say, thank you for all the ways that you have saved and blessed and cared for me that I will never know about this side of heaven. Because stories like this show me that there are countless times where I move into and through situations that work out for my good or for the good of those around me or our church. And it might be easy to look at it and say, oh, that was great. But it's like, no, that was God's deliverance. But we just didn't have eyes to see it. David had to negotiate the messy realities of his life without a moment by moment God whispering in his ear, go, the, go here, go do this, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to set these people asleep, then they're going to go, you're going to pick up the spear. But like, and some, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't raised in the church, but I know some people are raised in Christian environments where they are taught that you should expect to have kind of that play-by-play life commentary by God through his spirit, and that's what God's guidance looks like. And I just don't think that's true. I think it's only on very rare occasions that we actually become aware of God's activity in the moment. It's really in hindsight that we look back and we say, oh, I didn't realize it at the time, but like God was there. God was doing something. If we think that we should always have this felt sense of God is leading me and God is guiding me. I mean, we know God is with us. We know God is leading and guiding. I'm just saying, sometimes we feel like we're supposed to kind of feel and know that all the time. But David didn't. He was just focused on doing the next right thing and trusting God. And to expect that we can always know how God is working and where God is leading and where God is going to move us three or four steps ahead in the path of life I think that's an inappropriate expectation. I think it's an unbiblical expectation. I think it puts a lot of spiritual pressure on ourselves that is unnecessary. Because David, this, this king after God's own heart, like there's a lot invested in David coming to the throne, but God doesn't kind of lead him by the hand that way. He gives David opportunities to trust him. And part of that trust is, I don't exactly know what to do in this situation, but I'm going to honor God as best I know how. Verse 13, David crosses over to the other side. After they're a distance away, he calls out to Abner, who's the commander, kind of Saul's bodyguard. And he says, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Who are you? Who and then Abner says, well, who are you? We're calling to the king. He doesn't recognize the voice. And David said, you're a man, aren't you? 
And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your Lord the King? Someone came to destroy your Lord the King. What you've done is not good. He's calling Abner out for falling asleep on the job. Again, because David didn't know God put the guys to sleep. So he's like, oh, dude, you've totally failed. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? And then verse 17, Saul recognizes David's voice and he says, is that your voice, David, my son? And David yells across, yes, it is, my Lord and king. And then he says, why is my Lord pursuing your servant? David's like, why have you gone back on your word? You said you weren't going to come after me. What have I done? What am I guilty of? Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's word. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering for it. If I've done something wrong and, God, and God's using you as the instrument of justice, then I want to make amends to God. But if people have done it, if other people have stirred you up, may they be cursed before the Lord because they've driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go and serve other gods. And that's a poetic way of David saying, God gave this land to our uh, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm supposed to inhabit this land, but if you keep coming after me, you're going to drive me into pagan nations and in a sense force me, not that I would, but you, it's, in a sense you're not allowing me to come into the promised land and worship God like I should. You're not allowing me to come to the tabernacle. Again, for David, centering around God's presence was really important. Now you can say, David, but you can worship God in foreign lands and Technically, that's true. But David's like, but it's so special to be able to come together with other believers and worship God. And that's part of my spiritual birthright. So this would be another kind of um, scripture that uh, someone could use to emphasize the fact that like, do you need to come to church to worship God on Sunday? Uh, do you need to come to church to worship God? Like, no. But why wouldn't you want to? David was like, I don't, I don't want to be removed. There's something that's special that happens here when God's people gather and worship and sing together. It was important for him to be close to God and God's people. David continues, he says, Now don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts for a partridge in the mountains. He's like, I'm no threat to you, Saul. I'm not trying to get you. I'm like an annoying flea. Just let me be. Then Saul said, I have sinned. So Saul is cut to the heart and he says, come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I won't try and harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. In older translations, uh, I like it. It's a bit more poetic. Saul says, I've played the fool and I've erred exceedingly. Saul's like, I've been an idiot. And I'm just so off course. And as one commentator said, that is the most accurate and succinct one-line biography ever written. King Saul, I have acted like a fool and I've been terribly wrong. Saul's like, bring my spear and jug over, David. I want to embrace you. And David's like, mm, no, nah, I'm good. I, I like the space of separation between us. David says, here's your spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. You know, there's a saying, when people show you who they are, believe them. And that's what David is doing with Saul. 
He's like, I'd like to believe the words coming out of your mouth, but I don't because you are fair weather and you are completely unpredictable. And so, to use modern language, Davis is setting up a very clear boundary here. I don't wish you harm, Saul, but I'm not going to come into your camp with 3,000 men and then you just flip a switch and say, actually, killing David is now a good idea again. I can't trust you. So you can have someone come and retrieve your spear and there you go. And he sets boundaries accordingly. And again, another really important scripture that helps us to see there's nothing righteous or heroic or courageous by, keep, by returning and going into an abusive or manipulative or destructive relationship and just absorbing that cost again and again. Doesn't make you heroic, doesn't make you godly, doesn't make you Christ-like. To set boundaries and to say, you have shown me your character. I'm not out to take vengeance. I don't even wish ill will upon you. But the nature of the relationship has changed now. And you don't get access to me the way that you did before. That is a righteous, that is a good, that is a godly movement. David says, The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered me into your hands. Sorry, delivered you into my hands today, but I wouldn't lay a hand on you because you're the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David. You're going to do great things. You're going to surely triumph. Saul has this prophetic realization, this moment. And then it says, David went on his way. Saul returned home. This is the last meeting. This is the last exchange between David and Saul. And it's this picture as the sun sets on their relationship. It's two men moving in very different directions. Now to close, I want to have us consider the main symbol of this passage. And it's subtle, but to a Jewish reader who is sort of attuned to symbols, it's kind of hidden in plain sight. And that is the symbol of spear and water. Spear and water is the center point of this whole chapter. When we stretch our view out from this particular story, we see that a future king is coming. The true king of Israel. The king of kings. Someone that, um, whose character is kind of wedded and uh, connected to David in such a way that he is called a son of David. And this coming king will claim to be the king before whom every knee ought to bow. And every life should be built around. Every life should be built on. And this is the King Jesus. And this king will come and will be given the authority and power to condemn us to death and destruction. This is a king who could have justifiably run us through with the spear of judgment and, and would have been perfectly justified to do that. That would have been an act of justice. Just like Abishai wanted to run through Paul or Saul, who was resisting time and again who God was and what God had for him, this future king could have run us through and could have condemned us for all the ways that we rejected and ignored and dismissed and marginalized God's authority and who God is in our lives. But what does the future king do? Right? He takes the spear. He takes the spear literally into his side and in the Gospel of John, to confirm that Jesus was dead, it says one of the soldiers 
pierced Jesus' side with a spear and blood and water came out. We have all gone our own way. We have all operated like Saul for much of our lives. None of us can say that we're, I don't think any of us would be so foolish to say, actually, I see myself more as like the David in this story. Like I've, not perfect, but like pretty, pretty solid across a number of areas. No, we're the Saul in this story. We, like Saul, deserve God's spirit to be removed from us. We, like Saul, deserve to be judged and condemned for our self-centered kind of self-glorifying lives. And we, like Saul, have played the fool. And in countless ways, we have erred exceedingly. Romans 3 says it like this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, what does Jesus do in response to this truth? The king comes close. All the defenses that we had built up around us to keep God away, all the defenses that we built, we centered our lives around ourselves and used wealth and relationships and all kinds of tricks of the heart and of our imagination to keep God outside of our camp, but God comes in. God penetrates our defenses. The king comes close. He gets into our inner circle. He becomes a man. He lives among us. Why? To run us through with a spear? No. He doesn't come to kill or steal or destroy He comes close to seek and to save lost sinners. And he saves us by going to the cross, by taking the spear into himself. And then he provides for us blood and water, blood that covers over and cleanses and atones for our sin, and water, which is symbolic for the spirit, new life, new possibilities that that atonement opens up for us. And it all comes from Jesus, him alone. And so I hope you see, even in this kind of semi-obscure scripture, this chapter uh, buried near the end of 1 Samuel, that the Bible is always pointing us towards our need for Jesus. It's always finding subtle, poetic, nuanced, sophisticated, sometimes very simple, sometimes very complex ways of saying, you need Jesus. He is the true king. And one of the thrusts of the Scripture's message is that one day you will stand before God. And you will stand before God and there's going to be a full realization of what life was supposed to be about and what it was supposed to be for and to whom it was supposed to be dedicated. And for those who have rejected and ignored God and His grace and His authority, the responses will come through different tongues and it will come through different sentence structures, but they will all, they can all be summarized by the line, oh, I've played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. I come to the end of my life, and I I wasted it, and I've made a huge mistake. Don't waste your life by rejecting the only king who will take a spear for you and offer blood and water. Don't waste your life by choosing the road of folly because it ends in death and destruction and hell. Jesus came to provide a way of salvation, a way of deliverance, 
another option off of the cyclical downward spiral into sin and death. The price he paid was his life with his own blood so that you could be cleansed and washed and refined and then empowered into a new life built around him where his kingdom and power and grace gets established in a new way starting right now and then continues on forever. Do not play the fool. Turn to Christ and submit to his kingship. Let's pray. God, as we sing this final song and sing about your goodness, may we never take it for granted. May you open our eyes to see our need for you and protect us in whatever way we need protection from squandering our life and playing the fool. Thank you for your grace in our life, Jesus. Thank you for your salvation. May we sing now with hearts that are freshly aware of our need and love for you. Amen. I invite you to stand. Thank you.